Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus. Brendan here with Marco, and it is episode 93, Friday, July the 26th, uh, 2019, 2019. And an apology to our listeners with what happened with the last episode. Well, two, maybe three apologies, Mark. Um, <laughs> one is that I, I, I mentioned it as episode 91, it was actually 92. That's fault number one. Fault number two. I'm saying isn't our fault, and that was um, we had a bit of a sync issue. Um, for those who don't know, we rec- we use a particular podcasting program to record, um, and uh, it records our voices separately um, on our home computers, and then I hit the magic button and it combines them online and um, spits it out to me, um, so it saves a lot of time, and usually it works flawless- flawlessly, but occasionally when there's a bit of an internet glitch with one of us um it unsyncs everything and um that's what happened last time and it's happened probably the second time it's happened and thanks to doug for letting us know um that it was happening he said it ruined his drive home because we were talking over each other but um i don't think we'd be very good in a three-legged race mark because we'd be out of sync all the time you know know, i thought um, doug would be used to us talking over each other i didn't think it would be a um a particular issue for him to deal with brendan I, I think he's been a bit pandic and a bit, um, a bit, yeah, but yeah, apologies. So I did um, go and re-edit it and spend probably half an hour, three quarters of an hour, um, importing it into GarageBand on my Mac and playing around with the separate files. And I think the episode that I put up there, even though I didn't play it in its entirety, was was better. So um, hopefully, most of you have received the. Um, Synced one and not the unsynced one. So apologies about that. And the other one is the we were talking off air just before um, we started here, Mark, is that the ongoing issue with the outro being at a low level. And I don't know why that's happening because from my end it is at the same level as the intro and yet I think it's a post-production um, software um, puts it at a really low level. So I'm, I'm playing around with that a little bit to try and get that fixed. But most people are... Fl- Turned off by then, um, anyway, and um, haven't don't listen to Mister Outro Man when when I mention that it's time to go. But it does well. What does it do? We it care about his feelings. We um, plug our website vetgurus.com. We, we right. care and about he's, he's, he's paid paid a lot of money to do it as well. <laughs> <laughs> we um, and speaking of paying money, Mark, um, we always want new subscribers to our Patreon site. Patreon to convent gurus and throw us a dollar or five dollars a month. Just think, you know, give us a coffee every, equivalent every every month or two. Um, that's all we're asking for to help pay for our costs and um, and that alleviates some of the pressure off thing. our uh, wonderful sponsors, Brendan. And um, we've already mentioned Doug's contribution in research and critical appraisal in post production. Um, but um, but of course, uh, um, we really value the the. Um, the, the support of Microchips Australia and, um, and uh, the, the wide range of stuff they have for uh, um, exotic and avian veterinarians. And our other, our other sponsors, Brendan, which you were going to talk about. 
Oh, was I? Um, <laughs> I thought you were going to do all three. That is Specialised Animal Nutrition, which is Jen and her um, fabulous company, which is the um, Australian distributor of Oxbow products. And the final one, Mark, you can take. Oh, the wonderful Chemical Essentials. Um, and uh, and Andrew, um, you know, obviously the the uh, F10 products that are, um, oh, you couldn't run a veterinary practice uh, without them, I don't reckon, Brendan. No, we certainly wouldn't be sterile without them, would we? Um, yes, well, and, and I'm certainly sterile. Um, I'll have to tell our listeners about my – if, if, if I've gone through my I think every, every, my, third, I think or, I did, every I third or fourth episode. That's right, I do, I do. That's my mind going again, mate. Okay, so I've got I've got a review this week, Mark, and I said I wouldn't tell you what the review you is I to tried to you. I tried to weasel it out of you, and um, you were you were steadfast. You were waiting till we were on air. Well, it's going to be a big down now, isn't it? It is a Le Tour de France. Um, as you know, I love my cycling, and I really look forward to the tour every year. Um, watching it um, nightly and um, it's a rest day today which is the day we're recording a few days before the Friday and um, I don't know I just love it yeah despite um, all the all the um, controversy with um, well with most professional sports these days with potential drug cheats and you know we, we know the whole Lance Armstrong saga there Mark but the scenery is amazing and I just like the whole combativeness about it and, and the competition between all the different um, all the different jerseys, the king of the mountain, you know, the best climber, the sprinters, um, the overall general classification, which is a person who wears the yellow jersey and, and just the names and the and um, the characters, Mark. Um, it, it's a bit like a watching a, a novel unfold, you know, with some of the na- characters there, you know, and people like Naro Quint. Quintana, Julien Alaphilippe, who's in the yellow jersey as I speak. He may not be for that much longer. Vincenzo Nibali, Thibaut Pino, all these names that have these fantastic ring to them. And, um, yeah, I'm just loving it, Mark. So I give it a nine and a half out of ten. There you go. But um, I'm a bit of a crazy cycling nut and I, I just enjoy it. And, no, I'm not a... I'm, I'm not allowed to be a, a man in a like anymore. So I, I middle-aged man yes, in like um, Although I, I must admit that I never really got into that anyway. When I was do, out there on the road doing cycling, I, I did wear cycling shorts, but 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 they were loose ones. They looked like normal sort of running shorts with the with the little padded insert as well. So it wasn't the the slick lycra um, um, setup that would show your bits. Um, so. Um, Yes, so I was a little bit atypical with that, um, um, with not going for the full-on um, look of it all. But, yeah, that, so that's my review, Mark, and I know a lot of people are already turned off because they may hate cycling, but um, I'm quite enjoying it. And the, that beautiful scenery in France or France, however you want to pronounce it, is, is amazing. And I've yet to visit um, that particular country. And I it would be a wonderful thing to see the tour. It's um it is. It would be, I imagine, one of um, you know life's spectacles. Um, I think um, you know you go like I um, have only a superficial understanding of the um, intricacies of um, of a race like the tour, and um, but you can just tell that um, being in proximity to it, like, is impressive. It and like you said, the yes, yes the, well the um. 
And when you consider we were talking over each other again, sorry about that. But when you, yeah, it is the most um, the most number of spectators of any sport yeah. as far as live spectators, and obviously because there's no stadium, so people just line the route. And some of the um, certainly some of the previous um, tours has been over one million people um, during one day, and I think overall they average something like thirteen to fifteen million people watching it um, live, but yeah. seeing them flash past in the five or ten seconds that they <laughs> oh, go past. Excellent, yeah. and bloody hell, going up those hills, oh, it, it's unbelievable. Yes, well, yeah, that's why you need a few um, extra extra chemicals floating through your system, probably, Mark. I'd say, um, but um, that's. A debate or a talk about um, off air. So I'm going to jump into the first news story, Mark, and um, because I think it's Dan as me taking the first one. As always, we're very um, organised here, and um, it's, it's a local story here, but it's global, com- uh, global, um, not global complications, global. Um, what's the word? Global. Uh, <laughs> I don't know result. what you're trying um, to say. It's the wrong word. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and guess what? All I'm drinking tonight is a coffee. Maybe I need to have something a little bit stronger. Um, these Australian ants are bucking the insect apocalypse a trend, um, and it's talking about um, the increasingly stark scientific warnings about the state of bug kind, Mark, including a recent report suggesting 40% of the world's insect populations are in steep decline. One species in Australia's desert, um, the desert ants, are doing very, very well. And scientists have been monitoring, according to a study published in the Journal of Animal Ecology, tyrant ants, um, they're flourishing um, in northern Australia's Simpson Desert for the last 22 years. And mainly because of the increase in intense and frequent heat waves and rainfall that ranges wildly from 3 to 22 inches. So what's been happening is it's, um, well, guess what, due to um, global warming and climate change. So water's a driving factor for the species' survival. So they're enjoying a that they're aggressive sugar eaters and they're enjoying a population boom. Um, and following rainfall, plants grow flower and seed, providing honeydew, nectar and a food source for other invertebrates that the tyrant ants consume. And there's and also they postulate there's a second key factor influencing their surge and that's inadvertent human kindness um, in that... Um, The site of the study was purchased, and I found this interesting, Mark, was purchased by conservationists looking to bolster the local ecosystem. So they gradually eliminated cattle grazing, um, which has proven another um, reason why they're really taking off there. So, yeah, that's sort of a... Sort of a good a good news story in a way, certainly about this particular species. And I don't know whether I've been... um, I've seen these... um, up close and personal, Mark. These tyrant ants. Um, have you seen them um, out in the out in the bush? Yeah, they're pretty fearsome looking um, looking ants. A bit like you know, they're probably. I'd expect they'd be bigger they than, the, big, than the bull yeah. ants that we have here locally. I'm fascinated with. Yeah. So that's my first news story. Fascinated with those species of ants, and you, you know, I um my um you know I had an ant colony. Yes. Yep, and it collapsed. <laughs> it well, died off. Well, so, well, that's the insect apocalypse, Mark. Yeah, that's exactly right. right. 
Yeah, what exactly did you do? Right. You um, you flooded them. You provided some um, um, climate change, or you forgot to feed them, <laughs> or you just left them alone and um, you got bored with them. None of the above. What happened? I'm I'm really embarrassed to admit this because I love these. They're, they're little black um, ants, um, and uh, I I was lucky enough to find on the windowsill a a, a, a flying queen, and. Um, and I gave her a suitable home and she laid some eggs and we, we ended up with a colony. I don't know, there was about 50 or 60 and, and you just, you know, drop a bit of honey in or um, a, a, a um, dead insect. Um, yes. They were thriving and I thought, no, oh, It is absolutely you know pouring down they, here, Mark. I don't, don't know about you. What? They, I, dropped the in, I dropped in a... Um, a, a little piece of um, of uh, potato chip, but what the problem was was that it came from our lunchroom, and immediately before I dropped it in, um, the office was sprayed with insecticide because there were flies in the lunchroom, and oh. I didn't realise, and, and so I killed them. I go, and it, that just reminds me of how powerful those insecticides are. It just one, it literally was a five millimetre piece of potato crisp that I don't know how little insect spray got on it, but it just killed them all. Uh, Sorry about that. Well, that's a big downer for the, for um, an introduction to your first news story. Now I expect Mark that we may have a little, a few little glitches for this um, recording tonight because it is absolutely, as I just mentioned torrential rain here at the moment and um lots and lots of wind as well so we'll see how we we'll go hang in there at the mo- moment yeah we'll see how we go what's your first news story my well i'm not it's an i find it a really fascinating story uh, brendan it's um the report uh of um the bva's big conversation um so the bva the british veterinary association uh, um did a uh, massive survey um, uh, last year where they looked at, um, mainly they were looking at questions surrounding discrimination in the academic and uh, and clinical workplace. And um, their figures suggested that, um, that a huge percentage, um, maybe, um, what was the number, 16 percent had personally experienced discrimination in those locations in the last 12 months. Um, and yes. there was a whole bunch of interesting um, sort of corollaries from this. Um, the, surprisingly, uh, only about half of the respondents were worried about the discrimination. Nearly half, 44%, were, you know, they were sort of almost expected it, um, which, I don't know, made me feel vaguely uncomfortable. Um, Twelve, only 12% of respondents to the survey were satisfied at how the incident had been handled. Um, And interestingly, that number rose to 23% were satisfied when they felt they were comfortably able to report the incident. They, They... only had to be, like, how low a bar is that? They just had to feel comfortable reporting it and their uh, their satisfaction doubled from the background level of 12%. Sex discrimination was the most common type reported um, and I did see that, um, that part of this survey involved sending out um, job applications that had exactly the same CVs but had a male and female name on them. 
that were sent to various um, uh, practitioners, uh, to various practices, and invariably the male um, the male applicant with the same CV, with like literally the identical CV, was uh, given a better. Um, you know, rating a more employable person. Um, so, uh, so there's still, you know, um, sex discrimination. Discrimination on the basis of sex is. So, Mark, Mark, do you think that? So, why do you think that particular um, factor occurs? Is that because there's still an increase, a greater number of male practice owners, or are the practice owners expecting or thinking that a male veterinarian? Um, Will be better suited to the job. Oh, such good questions, Brendan. Um, the, the and the first answer is that um, it didn't matter. The, the, these statistics were then analysed in terms of um, of uh, male and female assessment, and still female yes. practice owners selected male names on the same CV as better quality employees. It's a societal problem. Um, it's not just blokes making jobs for blokes it's our background perception that uh that somehow for some reason um um, men are going to be um, better employees um and interestingly enough the people who said in uh who, who did not see um sex discrimination as a real issue were the worst at making the distinction, whereas the people who actively suggested sex discrimination was a real problem in the workplace, they um, they matched, you know, they were more likely to evenly match um, the applicants. So it is an awareness yes. um, problem that we, and I've got no doubt that while these uh, figures come from England, um, I've, I've got no doubt they would be replicated in a survey in Australia. Well, I, hope, I mean, yeah, with, with the change with the sex ratio of the of the veterinarians in the last what five or ten years i mean it's it's vastly skewed towards female graduates now i'm still amazed that even with that um that fact that um the selection is still saying yeah we'd prefer a male for that and you know i'd the only male in my clinic is me (laughs) mark as you well know and um and they all want to get rid of me because I'm I'm, I'm a pain to deal with um, a lot of the time, and and I do what you know I, I just yeah I don't understand it mate I don't understand. I'm with you 100. Um, percent I'm the only bloke in our practice, and um, and I'm probably the uh, you know the weakest link, the one that causes the most problems. So yeah, I don't I I I, I think it is just you know we've all got to. Be conscious of it and think about it, and try and put our uh, our um, biases, our subconscious biases, to the side wherever we can, and and uh, maybe black out those names and look at the job applications, uh, with, you know, without um, favouring, uh, without even knowing about uh, the sex of the applicant, and just take the best person. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Well. I haven't got a segue into my next story, Mark, but um, it is about otters. Otters smuggling is being fueled by the Japanese craze, and this is a depressing one, for cute animals. 
a recent undercover investigation by World Animal Protection has revealed illegal hunting, trafficking and increased attempts to captive breed otters, not just across Japan but also Thailand and Indonesia, to satisfy a growing international demand for the animal according to Vet Practice magazine and yeah, social media influencers, Mark, um, your friends um, are fueling it um, and there are interactive otter cafes in Japan. Now, I've never seen what these look like but it'll be something I'll be doing a bit of a cut and paste and a bit of a search for later for these otter cafes um, because in more than a dozen of these animal cafes they features, feature otters they found that their welfare is, well, it's <laughs> terrible, basically. Um, the otters are sad, sadly heard whimpering, shrieking and making distress calls while customers are interacting with them. And some of them collect kept in solitary conditions with no natural light. Others are seen biting their claws and, and exhibiting traumatised behaviour. And um, some even had really small cages with no access to water at all. So... Yeah, and then it just goes on to talk about what we've sort of spoken about a few times in, on, on our podcast, Mark, Mark. Just because an animal is cute doesn't mean you should take it home with you and keep it as a pet, although my dear wife Annie did that to me. so um, And she um, sometimes um, feeds me okay and, and pets me and um, um, she takes my, my, my water when I'm a bad boy. So, yeah, um, but, yeah, that's my, that's my um, second story. But... God, you know, this, how do you how do you deal with clients who bring in pets, Mark? This is the related thing that I always think about that that it's a species that you personally do not think should be kept, or if we want to keep it to that client, it it it, it may be a species not particularly suited to that client. Um, perhaps another client may be okay with it, but how do you approach trying to tell them? Well, I, I, struggle, I struggle with it so badly, and I, I don't mind telling you because this is a, a particular, um, I don't know, a, a um, crisis of, of professional life for me because um, I do, you know, our practice depends um, in significant part on uh, looking after people's birds and I struggle with um, some some species in particular um, I just don't know that they that we can replicate the um, you know the circumstances for which they have evolved in the wild and the one that leaps out to me is the eclectus parrots and and I we have clients who are so committed to their birds and set them up so so well and commit huge amounts of money to them um and and i've said it to them so i'm I'm not um you know i worry that even with that level of commitment that that maybe we still fall short of of a fulfilling eclectus parrot life and um and that might you know yes i i with the emotional uh, quotient that those birds carry, the intelligence and the strange relationships they develop in the wild. Um, it, it's um, yeah, the, the their life in captivity um, is is a completely different thing, and and sometimes I worry about it. Um, and that's not to disrespect the efforts of the people of the people who I get to see who keep them and and. Flatteringly for me, they they do listen to what I say and, to a certain extent, share some of my concerns. Um, 
and and I suppose what happens to those birds at the time that someone realises that they might not be, um, you know, that uh, being a pet might not be in their prime interest. The the the, the um, problem is already there. It's yeah, it's a really distressing part of our profession, and I uh, resolve it imperfectly by um, just trying to make sure that um, the lives of those birds is the best it possibly can be, and that um, that you know that I don't offend the people that are trying to make those lives good, but I make them aware of the limitations of the things that they can do. Yes, well. I have no solution to it, Mark, and I, I know we have spoken about this topic several times before on the podcast and we've gone to a couple of interesting talks at presentations at conferences as well about, um, well, just keeping pets generally and whether we should. So it's, it's something that I think, well, both you and I battle with all the time, even though we were in that particular industry. But, yeah, so, yes, have you got a good news story, Mark, to finish off? <laughs> I do. I, I, I'm going to raise the tone. Stop, stop lowering it and depressing people. Um, you, Brendan, you know um, that Kate and I love elephants. We went when we went to um, to Borneo. We were we we trudged around quite a lot to try and find the the uh, one of the few remaining um, uh, elephants in Borneo. The, they have a particular um, small. Um, uh, race of the Asiatic elephant. Um, we were unlucky in that we couldn't find any, um, but that doesn't stop us loving those elephants any. You know, we we love them. And this story is about one of the roles that um, the uh, Asiatic elephants play in the ecology of the forests of Myanmar. Now, we all know that um, you can't be something as big as an elephant trudging through a forest and not have an impact. And, of course, they tear great um, swathes of the forest down to eat and to walk through. Um, but one of the effects that um, really has only been recently um, identified is the footprint of these elephants in those tropical locations provides an ideal habitat for um, many of the forest frogs to lay their eggs. So the rain-filled footprints of these elephants provide a, an ideal, safe, small pond um, for uh, for the tadpoles to um, grow and metamorphose and turn into frogs. And the, some of these footprints are... You know, have lasted with water in them for more than a year. Um, so they're particularly important habitats as the seasons dry and they provide um, a neat stepping stone between frog populations that uh, survive around more permanent water, uh, you know, water locations. So it uh, is one of the many aspects of, um, of elephant ecology that, uh, that they act as ecosystem engineers on multiple levels and, um, you know, not just the tadpoles and frogs but the dozens of species of insects which live in the uh, stools and the footprints, um, it completely changes the nature of the forest on multiple levels. 
the fact they modify the vegetation by knocking over trees and changing the shade um, uh, protocol at the shade nature at the level of the ground, dispersing seed, eating all the bamboo, they they really have a profound effect, Brendan. And um, I suppose it just points to the critical and crucial and central nature of these uh, megafauna to the jungles of Southeast Asia. They have a wonderful print there, you might say. Yes. It was a very good article. That that was from Scientific American, I think, that article, wasn't it? Um, and very well written. And I like the comment near the end about um, more studies are needed to on the role of elephants, especially in the light of the, the, the decline of these large fauna. And that decline, as the article says, obviously is caused by a creature with a much bigger footprint than humans. Um, so there you go. I've just brought it down again. <laughs> so, but um, yeah, no, excellent article, Mark. Well done on that one. Um, we should jump into our. Our, our intros and our news have taken up um, half an hour, hasn't it? Um, we should jump into our main topic. So this week we are talking about reptile anesthesia. And I know we have covered this in bits in previous podcasts when we've been talking about particular surgical procedures in reptiles, but I think it's a, a good time to go through a summary of um, anesthesia of reptiles, the do's and the don'ts, and, and our particular quirks and 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 um favorite um methods and and drugs to anesthetize them um so yeah let's jump into it mark so i suppose the, the logical first thing is talking about the patient preparation or or um examination mark um so do you want to talk about how, how you approach the um reptile anesthetic for sure, Brendan. We um, and and so like so many of the topics we talk about, um, it's an extrapolation, uh, uh, um, using the principles we use elsewhere and applying it um, to a new species, and and just tailoring it to the peccadilloes, to the peculiarities of that species. And with reptiles, um, of course, no discussion about anything to do with the veterinary care of reptiles is complete until we talk about thermoregulation. And so um, we would uh, be presented with a, an animal that needs to be anaesthetized. We would make an assessment of its health, whether it was ill or in good health, um, and then we would stabilize it in its appropriate preferred optimal temperature zone or preferred body temperature, POTZ or PBT. Um, we would fast the animal, particularly snakes, because they uh, are very likely to regurgitate a recent meal. It's good to allow them a food cycle, Brendan, um, and uh, make sure that we um, consider setting them up for the anaesthetic uh, at a time when they've, um, you know, if, the, if you're feeding that particular snake once every 10 days, then give it 10 days after the last meal so that, um, so that uh, food doesn't become a problem. And, of course, in our snakes, the, the feeding process actually creates a significant metabolic change, the blood flow and... Uh, metabolism of the gut lining um, changes dramatically and that in turn changes the nature of um, the metabolism of the anaesthetic yes. agents we choose to use. Absolutely. And yeah, so fasting it and that's and I always say to vets unsure about doing reptile anaesthesia is yeah, starve it or fast it for at least one feed cycle. Um, 
for the non-urgent cases. And, um, yeah, if it's a snake that's fed every one to two or three weeks, you, you get the client to fast it for that period of time, as you've just said. If it's a, if it's a lizard that, um, that is fed once a day, then you, then you fast it for at least once a day. Yeah, it's amazing. The, and, and I'm sure you've seen it, Mark, and um, some, I occasionally have a phone call from veterinarian saying, gee, have a client who's brought a new new snake owner client who's uh, just fed the snake and he's, um, they phoned up the clinic worried about um, it having a ventral burn um, and they can see a, a red tinge um, to the ventral aspect of the snake. Um because um, I do see in some of them you can see almost this, um, you know, glow, red, red erythema yes. there, where where all that um, blood supply um, to the stomach region is. It's you know, it's 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 like you after a big feed, Mark. Um, when I've gone out to dinner with you, and and after after you've gobbled it all down, you're sitting there and you just cannot move. Um, <laughs> next next hour or so. I remember. I remember at the last UPAV conference, Brendan, I was um doing a bit of the um the uh, postprandial. <laughs> Back. Yes, that was due to something a little bit different, Mark. Um, that was a day out in the sun where you didn't put any sunscreen on. Um, so, yes. Um, so, yeah. So, um, I've gone completely off track there. But, yes. So, oh, it's an important point, though. I like the fact that you raised it because um, whether, you, you know, obviously if they're fed, there's that excitement. Uh, if they're handled, even in a consult, um, you will regularly get that um, uh Blush, particularly on the ventrum of the, you know, the nice. snakes like the diamond python that are, are relatively pale cream coloured, um, and it can be really apparent. And first time someone sees it, they get a bit of a shock. And if they do the typical thing and look on Google for um, blush, red suffusion on the belly of your snake, they'll definitely come up with the old septic blush that we regularly see in six snakes, but. That um, and if you don't know the difference, it it can be very um, confusing to look at, and certainly there's a degree of overlap. But the septic blush is where the chemicals that are released by bacteria damage the capillaries, and so you get an irregular, um, uh, you know, patchwork of um, red colour that doesn't fade, it just stays there because it's leached out of those capillaries that have been damaged by the bacterial toxins, whereas the septic, the the uh, excitatory or uh, perennial flush, that's um, something that's much more even and, and, and can appear relatively quickly within 10 or 20 seconds and disappear equally quickly. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So we have that non-urgent case that we have that fasting period and then we, well, the same as any any other species, we, we consider pre-medication. With the, with the urgent cases, um, obviously we want to try and stabilise them and we will be using methods during the actual anaesthesia to try and um, make sure that they come out of that anaesthetic as well. So we'll chat about those sort of aspects a little bit later. Um, so pre-medication, Mark, so what's what options have you got? Do you, do do we use pre-medicants in, in reptiles? I certainly do, Brendan. I certainly do. Um, and and there are, but there are some questions, I suppose. One of the reasons that we use pre-medicants in other species is that whole concept of um, balanced anaesthesia where we might be using a little bit less of, um, of, medic, of a particular medicant or a particular anaesthesia, anaesthesia agent. Um, 
And we can lessen that by coupling it with complementary uh, medications, you know, much like, you know, for one of our dogs, we might use um, ACE and uh, an opioid together, ACE and methadone or morphine. Um, and so you can use lower doses of each of those because they're together and then lower doses of your induction agent and hopefully um, of your maintenance agent. I don't see the anaesthetic sparing capacity of the pre-medicants we use um, nearly to the same extent in reptiles. So we would very regularly use something like um, um, midazolam and diazepam um, and we would regularly uh, mix those medications with uh, a um, mu agonist opioid um, uh, in most species. There are occasional species of reptiles, you know, much like the mammals that have differing sensitivities to the various uh, opiates. Um, but our most commonly we're using, for most of the common species we see as pets, we're using um, uh, the mu agonists, methadone or fentanyl or morphine. Um, and coupling that with um, uh, maybe midazolam um, as a pre-medicant, Brendan. And that usually sets us up pretty well with not the, the degree of sedation, I wouldn't say, you know, there are the, the, some of the reptiles will move a little bit slower maybe. Um, it certainly doesn't knock their socks off, even though we use those drugs at relatively high doses. Yes, well, not surprisingly enough, <laughs> I um, I agree. I mean, basically, my my standard pre medicant for most reptiles is is certainly methadone, and um, I might throw in one of the other agents that you've suggested there. Yeah, and I think that the theory is, as you've gone through, is the same as as what we'd expect with other species. Although, yes, I agree with you completely in that often we don't have a sedative effect the same amount, and. Um, um, yeah, I agree again with the, with the aspect about um, anaesthetic gas sparing effects. In that, yeah, I still find I need to have the um, anaesthetic gas up to a, a reasonable percentage um, with ones that are pre-medicated, um, as well as the ones that aren't pre-medicated. So, yeah, I, I agree completely with that as well. So, we're in total agreement there, Mark. Um, and hopefully, <laughs> we get in a slightly. Yes, hopefully we're getting a a, um, a smoother recovery too um, with using these agents as well, and getting that you know I, I my, you know I, I must admit the number one reason why I am using those premedicants, especially the the methadone, is to try and get some analgesia on board um, before the um, procedure has started. Um, and particularly for surgery, you 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 know I feel a, a moral obligation to make sure that um, we're doing the very best we can to limit pain. Particularly in those species, one of the characteristics of reptiles I find is that they don't. They're even more cryptic and secretive about expressing the signs of pain, um, and so it is easy to dismiss their discomfort. Um, but I, I feel that um, added responsibility, knowing they have the same nociceptors and um, pathways, um, I feel it's uh, imperative that we um, do that um, complete balanced analgesia in, in complement to our uh, anaesthesia. Yes. So we've premedicated it. It 
And then we go ahead with induction, Mark. So let's chat about induction. Well, I, need you, I need you to tell me, because your name is spattered all over the literature um, that deals with um, with uh, uh, um, reptile anesthesia, particularly in this area. You, you led the way with some very, very interesting research in induction agents. So I need you to... You know, and I've got to emphasize here, part of the reason that we're in such synchronicity is because I learned everything from you. Um, so tell me about inducing them. I think you've been reading about some other author, not me there, Mark. Um, so my induction, well, oh, gee, I've got a few things to say here, Mark. So interrupt me um, if I babble on too much. Um the one I always um, stress to people, and, and unfortunately, uh, I had a case of this recently where I had a veterinarian who was um, popping their reptiles in the freezer, Mark, no. as their method of anaesthesia, supposedly anaesthesia. Um, it will immobilise them, um, but it certainly won't provide any anaesthesia as far as I'm concerned. Um, so there still are veterinarians, unfortunately, Um Hopefully, less and less that will um, use that technique to immobilise the reptiles in order to perform surgery on them. So that's the first big no-no that I always um, want to get out there, out into the open, because yeah, it's some um, barbaric. It is barbaric. And there. the other thing about it that's really important to point out is that um, it slows healing and it makes the lizard or snake more likely to die during your procedure. Um, so, and that's not a good thing. <laughs> So, I don't think, so, yes. So step it up is what I'm saying. Step yes. Step it up. So anaesthetic induction. So, yeah, lots of different – I mean, one. my first comment would be there's lots of different protocols and lots of different drugs that can be used to induce them. And I, I, like most anesthesias, anaesthetics, Mark, um, I think there's no one particular technique that's better than others. And I think, like everything, we get good at what we – use all the time so um, I think that's um, one of my one of the important factors that we need to take into account and I I'm always suspicious of of somebody who says to me oh this is the this is the anesthetic protocol for a lizard or a guinea pig or a horse or whatever um, and and there's no other one and this is the gold standard because I don't think there is really such a thing in my opinion anyway. So um, there's lots of different options there and, and I'll chat about the ones that I've had experience with Mark and I'm sure you'll do the same. Um, the route of induction is an interesting, market, interesting one Mark and, and um, I always try and um, use an intravenous induction method and, and the good news with, with most reptiles that we're dealing with in the pet um, scenario, we can manage to get access of vein there. So in the snakes, the obvious one that we go for is the um, ventral tail vein there. Um, some people do go intracardiac um, and it is used um, fairly commonly in some, some regions but it is not my preferred way to induce um, anaesthesia with with injecting the agent into the heart, um, it may. There has been the very odd occasion where I've had to had to do that, Mark. Um, when I've had a very tiny patient, and it was very important. Might be a risky patient that, um, sorry, a, a species that um, is is a very important species in a zoo situation, for instance, that um, that we need to anaesthetise to do a procedure that may be risky, but we want to try and keep this particular individual. 
um, with us for breeding or, or whatever um, and we don't have any other option um, and it's such a small animal that we can't get a ventral tail vein and um, it may be one where intramuscular induction is not an option as well. Um, but my preference is not to go for the intracardiac. Um, have you got a comment over Just that? exactly that the same. Point? I know that, um, you know, we both have an interest in a lot of the ecological field work and I know that many ecologists in looking yes. at herpetofauna do routinely do cardiac puncture to obtain blood samples and um and it, oh, every time I see or hear of it it um it I'm, I'm not lying to say I get a bit distressed Brendan because um I, I um I just uh well, I don't think it's necessary to stick it in the heart. And like you said, there's a, I'm, I'm never absolute about these things and we've got to take advantage of whatever's best for each individual patient weighing up the risks. And there, there are, have been times that I have used it, but I go a long way to try and not use it. Yes, Yes, I agree, but others may disagree with us, Mark. So yeah, and and I know some uh, some of those field studies where they have caught reptiles up um, season after season, where they have induced anaesthesia for whatever procedures they were doing by intracardiac um, injections, that the animals have survived because they are catching them year after year, Mark. Um, although I think I have seen reports with some necropsy um, results from at least one study where they did show that you know you could see the tracks were, um, through the cardiac muscle where the, they had put those needles so um, yeah so and, and my other comment with the induction method is um, or the route um, is I don't like um, subcutaneous um, um, medications generally um, in, in reptiles, Mark, because I think the absorption rates are extremely variable. And the reason why I wanted to comment on this is there are, there are a fair number of papers that are studying the various um, anaesthetic agents where they have used um, subcutaneous induction um, as as part of the process um, for those for those published papers and and personally I, I, I just worry that um, subcutaneous um, injections are, are going to be so variable that they're not really that valid as and, and that's why they've had a Bad lot results. of vastly yeah variable results with the induction so I, I, I do not go with um, um, subcutaneous even with injectable um, any medications in, in reptiles, I'll be trying to go intramuscular over preference to um, subcutaneous um, with, with trying to get a more consistent absorption rate. So assuming we go with intravenous, Mark, well, uh, uh, I'm going to throw it over to you. What, what drugs, what, what drugs um, would, be, would you be reaching for first, Mark? Do, I know what you do. Say. There, there was a time when we used a little bit of um, intravenous um, ketamine, but... Um, but it, it, it um, while it would certainly help us to achieve a, um, a level of anaesthesia, geez, we had some stormy recoveries. And, and I'd have had one of those cases where particularly a lapids um, can be, well, almost develop like a rage syndrome post-ketamine that um, uh, can, you know, for years afterwards, they're unhandleable lovely um the one in that i had in mind when i was a new graduate was a beautiful red belly black snake that was um like a big labrador would crawl over its owner and um after we anesthetized it with ketamine um uh, it uh, would strike anyone who walked past its enclosure it became 
virtually unhandleable. So, um, so I don't use the ketamine anymore, Brendan. Almost all the intravenous induction that we do at the Sugarloaf Animal Hospital is uh, with um, with Alfaxan. Uh, and um, we find it an excellent agent. Um, we, uh, you know, you know what an awful intra uh, phlebotomist I am, um, and uh, so obviously sometimes those injections are not going into the vein. But we get good anaesthetic results, good induction results with the Alfax. And, and that's the topic I was talking about. Everywhere I look. When I'm doing my research for anaesthesia, um, the uh, reference to Carmel dot B um, with uh, various protocols of Alfaxan for reptiles warms the cockles of my heart. Well, I think that was just that was just fortuitous that um, when that particular product, which is an Australian-made product um, and developed. Um, just happened to be around at the right time, Mark. So it was a perfect storm, um, and I managed to score a big batch of free free samples when it was coming onto the market. So, um, and I was seeing a fair number of reptiles. So I was having a little play with variations of of dose rates of it. And um, yeah, there's lots more, lots more smarter people than me that have um, written much more articles since um, about um, and much better articles um than me on it but yeah i was just lucky at the time um so yeah i have the same same um same love for that particular product with reptiles in that i'm um, i always reach for the alfaxan first and the you know the the dose rate is is variable depending on the species but it's pretty consistent um drug i, I do personally think and i know that um, people who use alfaxan consistently they usually state the same in that they prefer it over propofol and propofol is still a, a very good induction agent um, for reptiles as well mark but but i do think that the alfax alone um, is is um, consistently in my hands anyway is is um, does seem to work smoother and and a smoother recovery um, with them so yeah. and i and I definitely in in a clinical situation, particularly um, with our reptile anaesthesia, if we get to a point where we're using the propofol and we're having that less reliable, less predictable response, it can set us back a day and you know waste so much time in the hospital. I don't mind um, telling everyone that uh, we get a, we get. Um, just in terms of organising the hospital, a much more consistent result with the uh, facts alone, and um, and so we yeah at the moment that's our first choice. What do you use to keep them under once you've uh, weaved your magic with the Alfax uh, NCD, Brendan? Well, then we hit them with the gas. So intubate. So I intubate every single one that I can, which is ninety nine percent of them, um, if not close to 100%. And the important point here is that we then need to ventilate them because if we're not ventilating that reptile, two things are going to happen, Mark, or one of two things, either they're going to wake up, they will wake up on you and start um, taking off across the table or they will die. And the good news is um, it's pretty, in my experience, it's pretty hard to kill reptiles with anaesthesia, Mark. Um, I'm pretty... Blase these days about it. I, I'm very relaxed about my reptile anaesthesia, and um, I, I think they're um, they're quite um, quite resilient um, um, with 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 what we're doing if we're doing it properly. And um, 
I think it's often um, you have to do something um, quite wrong in order to um, kill them under an anaesthesia. So we're intubating them um, and then we were uh, are, um, ventilating them and, and I have isoflurane. I don't have any of the other fancy gases like you have, Mark, So, um, and I will be ventilating them at, at around about... Um, one and a half to two and a half percent isoflurane, depending on the on the species and the procedures that's been um, undertaken, and, and usually ventilating around about. And I'm using a Vetronics brand of ventilator, which is a, a UK uh, um, brand of ventilator that that's made specifically for exotics. The older model of that um, Vetronics. We just we just got a new one. We yes. had the older model, and I broke it as I do with most things. <laughs> Um, and we just got the new one, and Excellent. it's awesome. And that's the Vetronics one, the new Vetronics yeah, one? Yeah. Uh, great. Um, now I'm very jealous. Um, and what ventilation rate do you um, do per minute, Mark? Well, it varies, but we're generally aiming to try and give them a, a breath about once every 12 seconds, something like five breaths a minute. Ah, 12 seconds. Gee, you're making it complicated. I just say for a minute every 15. <laughs> <laughs> it's not you're, that much different. Five. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So, yeah, so that's how we maintain them. But when we're maintaining, how do we – gee, we've um, – You've almost run out of time, Mark. Let's rip through the rest. <laughs> We're going to go through maintenance and monitoring and recovery. Um, well, it's really then... important to talk about um, monitoring because once you've got them on the ventilator, um, you could kill them. If you have run your accidentally put your ISO to five and ventilate them, yes. um, you, you, they'll, they'll, you know, if you're not monitoring them, they still look just fine, um, but the heart could be stopped. So it is very important to monitor them. So how, what, what devices do you use to check that, Brendan? Well, number one is a human yes. who is there and um, watching the animal and, and touching and palpating and trying to, trying to um, assess things. But number two is the Doppler by far. And it's my favourite instrument there, the Doppler. So we, we take that Doppler um, over the heart um, we tape it into the thoracic inlet in our lizards, um, and and we get a nice rhythm going there, Mark. I was going to say, I was just laughing because not only does it make you happy to hear the noise, but you dance, Brendan, to the rhythm. Well, do I? Yes, you may. Yes. <laughs> we yes, all should. It's very soothing, isn't it, that to hear that. Um, so I listen to the rate and the rhythm of it, so we um, we get a bit of a good feel of what's happening. And as we're as we're recovering that animal too, we see that um, the strength of that heart, the rate and the rhythm um, increases as, as they're coming out of the anesthesia. Well, say Doppler, yeah, um, pulse oximeter. Um, basically, um, the, th the general thoughts I think still are that um, it's unreliable in reptiles, but if you do manage to get a, um, a reading, then um, use it as a trend. Um, don't trust whatever percentage it's reporting to you there, but use it as a trend if it's if if you are getting a reading and it and it does drop um, without you changing or touching it, then then maybe um, have a closer look at the animal. But um, I think it's not particularly um, useful. Um, ECG um, is is um, is something that I should be using more often. I have a monitor with an ECG leads on there, but I don't routinely attach them to the reptiles. Do you, mate? With uh, 
it's sometimes yes, sometimes no. For definitely for the longer procedures, we we get ourselves organised and get the ECG on. But for most procedures that are less than twenty or twenty five minutes, we probably are not. I'm embarrassed to admit. But what other ways do you support those um, those anaesthetised animals, Brendan? Do do you, for example, for example, um, do anything to maintain their body temperature? Well, for example, I'd be using my um, hot dog warming system, which is a US um, um, sort of um, pads that um, or blankets you can wrap around the animal. So, yeah, being a reptile, we worry about heat um, and heat loss in particular, so we need to keep them warm. And I think the most common reason why most reptiles that um, people – are waiting around for for much longer than they think they need to with it recovering. The reason why it's taking so long to wake up is not that you overdosed it or you gave the wrong anaesthetic. It's just it it got cold during the anaesthe- uh, during the surgery and the anaesthesia, and that's why it's taking so long to wake up. So you need to keep them warm, Mark. Yeah, um, and there's lots of different variations on 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 um, methods of doing that, including the you know the bear huggers, all those sorts of um warm air things. Um, I like the um. I like that particular blanket warming one because I, I don't lose the reptile in in the in the bear hugger, um, so I can still see it. Um, and monitoring that that core um, temperature again, it's something that I'm a little bit slack on. I should have a have a, a thermometer down an orifice um, and and monitoring it um, as we're going, especially with the longer surgeries, um, yeah. because it's a bit scary, isn't it? They, even with the dogs and cats and our our commonly. Um, anaesthetized species in in small animal practice um it's amazing how quickly the the core temperatures um do decrease yeah and the other big one is is fluid support mark so do you want to chat about that one well it's it's exactly the same as um as our other species brendan that um cardiovascular function and uh um, peripheral perfusion um peripheral perfusion providing uh, blood to those surface layers that are exposed to your wonderful hot dog blanket of warmth. Um, and if those things, if there's not blood getting to those peripheries, um, then then uh, heat transfer is not going to occur no matter how good your uh, hot dog or bear hugger is. So, um, so I think fluid support is absolutely critical. We... In theme, with our discussion before, I think it's a bit of a waste of time to put a big bleb under the skin in these patients because um, pretty much it just sits there as a big bleb under the skin. Um, And so it is good uh, to establish intravenous um, access, uh, and we usually would do that after they're anaesthetised. uh, and regularly, particularly for our pythons, we've gotten in the habit of cutting down onto the jugular and inserting a catheter and gluing it in place. Um, and then often, um, we intermittently, uh, um, we're pretty keen to get a, a you know a syringe driver. But at the moment, we would just um, uh, deliver doses of uh, bolus, yeah, intermittently, and keep them. Um, Keep them from drying out. We often splash a little bit of um, warmed saline over the surgical site too. We find that that hurts a lot if it gets too dry and um, and obviously they lose a lot of heat that way as well. Yes. And do you – I? it's not – uncommon for me to use intrasalomic fluids as well, Mark, yeah. um, for the ones that I haven't um, 
I don't have a prolonged surgical um, case in front of me, and uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm slack, and I'm not cutting down over that jugular and putting intravenous catheter in there. I'd be going with some intrasalamic fluids, and for the shorter procedures or the ones that I'm even slacker with, um, <laughs> some of those I do go with um, subcutaneous fluids. So, regardless of how minor or major the surgery is, they will be getting some sort of fluid yep. support. And what about once they've recovered, Brendan? What what uh, what are the key things to ensure that they recover? Like we've you know, if we've maintained their body temperature, they're recovering relatively quickly. But then they're just I don't know. We've got them on the we've turned the anaesthetic off. They're still connected up to the uh, ventilator, and they're just not waking up, Brendan. Why is this happening? Well, I'm out of the room by then. I said to my nurse, my job is done here, and I walk out to grab a cup of coffee. <laughs> no, I know what you're getting at there, Mark. Yeah, it's, it's the aspect of um, taking them off the oxygen. Um, you may be still intermittently vent or, or more than intermittently. You may have them on the ventilator. The idea, the, the thoughts are, well, the, the science is in, isn't it? It's not out um, that that you should um, ideally wake them on room air, not oxygen. Um, so reptiles will will take longer to recover um, if you just have them on the oxygen, which is the opposite of what we would be doing with our mammals, for instance. And, Mark, what's the science behind well, that? The, because the, I can't remember. The gas that drives the, the gas that's sensed by the central nervous system as a trigger um, to uh, ventilate that drives ventilation um, in our dogs and cats, for example, that's carbon dioxide. So as carbon dioxide rises, there's a drive to. Uh, it's, uh, there's a. Um, now you've confused me. Uh, uh, carbon dioxide as an impulse to breathe. Once that happens, it's it's um. Uh, I've got my. Head. Don't worry, Mark. Back. Don't it's worry, Mark. Confused me. <laughs> now I'm going to cry. You can you can um, bone up on that topic, and you can present it to us next I'll, week. I'll definitely so, be so don't punching worry, um, it out as soon as we get there. Oh, you'll be punching me as soon as you see me again for dropping you in that um, particular um, hole there, Mark. I think Um, I've got it, Brendan. Hypoxia in dogs and cats. So if we, uh, um, if we, no, that's not even right either. I'll let me punch it out. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, don't don't worry, Mark. Don't stress, Mark. Don't stress. No, you're you're sounding so relaxed um, considering (laughs) um, how. Wound up you were before we started recording because you'd had a had a particularly busy day or a, or a little bit of a challenging day and uh, I know you do use our podcast as a bit of a debrief and um, now I've wound you up again. Mark. We'll make up for it next time. Yes, yes. No. Well, thanks for listening. Talk <laughs> <laughs> to you all. Welcome next to the week. Vet podcast. See I'm you then. Vet gurus Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the VetGurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the VetGurus, Brendan and Mark. And that was the intro. It should have been the outro. So I'm going to play the outro, Mark, and um, we'll go from there.
Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thank you.